0: Right now, though, as you've been hearing in the news, B.C. pharmacies are getting ready to get their supply of AstraZeneca second doses. That is starting today. So we thought it would be a good idea to check in with the B.C. Pharmacy Association and find out exactly how that rollout is going to take place. Well, Annette Robinson is the president of the B.C. Pharmacy Association and joins me on the line now. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, we know that supplies of AstraZeneca for the second doses are scheduled to arrive in uh, pharmacies in this province today. How do you see that rolling out?
1: Well, pharmacists in BC are very happy to be part of the second dose vaccination program. We're, we're looking forward to providing everyone with their shots. And uh, the news was short that we were going to be getting these second doses, but uh, as always, our pharmacies and pharmacists are very agile and we're prepared and ready to uh, contact and connect with our patients and get the second doses for them.
0: Uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been very clear that people who are in the scenario where you got a first dose of AstraZeneca and you're going to get the second dose a dose of AstraZeneca, don't call the pharmacy. The pharmacy will call you. Uh, have pharmacies been getting calls, though? So I'm imagining maybe some people are, are overly eager and have been calling
1: Yes, you're correct. Uh, People, our patients are very anxious and they're very familiar with their pharmacists and feel comfortable connecting with them, getting information that they need. But we do have a lot of calls coming into our pharmacy. So we ask that uh, patients please uh, prevent themselves from calling and know that the pharmacists will connect with you. People who have received their first doses, uh, when it's 8 to 12 weeks, the pharmacy will get a hold of you and uh, discuss with you your choice. And if you choose to go with the second dose of AstraZeneca, we'll book you in for a vaccine if they have supply in their pharmacy.
0: All right. And because I was even hearing people calling in this radio station earlier today, concerned that they're at about the nine-week mark and they haven't heard from their pharmacist. So not a concern there. It sounds like it could be as much as 12 weeks.
1: Absolutely. Uh, We're hoping that everyone will get their second dose by 12 weeks. But again, it's all about supply. So as long as we're able to get the AstraZeneca covid shield vaccines into our pharmacies, we will do our best to get it into the arms of our patients. Uh,
0: Do you think there is a concern or is there a chance there won't be enough then, say, if everybody who got AstraZeneca the first time around chose the second dose to also be uh, AstraZeneca, is there enough?
1: What we're hearing is yes, they definitely have enough supply for everyone that received their first AstraZeneca dose. So that should not be an issue. And we do also know that there may be a chance that not everyone wants to get a second dose of AstraZeneca. So that might decrease the demand for it as well.
0: And uh, do we have to be concerned at all with expiry dates or is the supply that's coming in of the AstraZeneca, does it expire in that it needs to be used say by the end of this month or there's that kind of push to make sure it's used before the expiry?
1: Yeah. Pharmacists would never give a vaccine, uh, past the expiry date. Uh, So as my understanding is today, the supply that's coming into pharmacies have an expanded expiry date and will exceed the date of any vaccines that we're giving.
0: Uh, I would imagine pharmacists are also getting a lot of questions about the second dose. And when somebody perhaps is called by their pharmacist saying, you got the AstraZeneca for your first shot, we have an appointment available if you want to come back. Is that the appropriate time to have that discussion with your pharmacist about the pros and cons? Or maybe if somebody isn't sure if they want to AstraZeneca for the second dose or they might want to choose an mRNA? Yeah, that's absolutely the the best.
1: Uh, We are the medication experts and we've done our, our homework. We have the research and based on scientific evidence, we're going to recommend that you preferably receive the same vaccine for your second shot. There's no problem with the AstraZeneca. However, if you do decide it is your personal choice to have an mRNA vaccine, then you will have to go through a different channel through the mass immunization clinics to receive that.
0: Uh, Was there ever a discussion about also having pharmacies uh, give out the mRNA in that if somebody did have that conversation, then it seems like it would be more streamlined or even a bit easier for the person. If we're given the choice, then they could still come and get it at the pharmacy. Uh,
1: Sorry, you you cut off a bit there, but was your question...
0: Is there the ability to get an mRNA vaccine in a pharmacy, or, or was there that conversation? I know if, if somebody does choose the mRNA, like you said, they then go into the the provincial system of the mass clinics. Do you think would it be easier if pharmacists were also part of the rollout of the mRNA?
1: I, I think it, it may be easier for patients to get everything all in one in one stop. However, uh, we we do know that discussions uh, had initially uh, began with us perhaps doing the second doses of both uh, mRNA vaccines and the AstraZeneca. However, our mass immunization clinics have been very successful and they're running very efficiently. So it's felt that that stream is working well. So they'll continue to provide those at those vaccine clinics.
0: Uh, I would imagine, too, one of the questions that pharmacists are going to be getting when they do call and say, you uh, got AstraZeneca, you are now available or now eligible to get a second dose. Uh, People uh, there, I've heard the concerns of, even if you didn't have uh, many side effects, maybe nothing more than a sore arm the first shot. uh, What if you have concerns about potential side effects for the second shot?
1: Yeah, generally, uh, your, your body's all revved up ready to go and, and you may have a little bit more of a sore arm or uh, fever that type of thing but we do know that generally with the using the second vaccine the same vaccine as you received the first time that is decreased however if you choose to get a different vaccine you may find that um, the side effects are a little bit uh, more pronounced And and i'm talking a sore arm where you had your injection and fever um, so so relatively nothing nothing extraordinary that would happen with other vaccines.
0: All right, so in a scenario, and a lot of people reported this, that getting the first shot of AstraZeneca the next day, feeling sore arm, fatigue, maybe a bit of nausea, uh, those were some of the, the side effects. Would you expect then for the second shot it would be the same or it would be milder?
1: Yeah, well, every person is different, so I, I can't um, really comment on that but my suspicion or my expectation would be that yes if you did have a a sore arm or a bit of a fever or just feeling kind of unwell for a few hours after your dose or the next day that that may definitely happen for the second dose as well.
0: All right Uh, as far as capacity are there is there enough space for uh, people to come back or how do you see this kind of playing out as those calls are going out to people and booking those second appointments?
1: I'm just asking that, you know, people just be patient. Uh, if you don't hear from your pharmacist right away, just just uh, hang on. We will be getting a hold of you. Uh, we'll be connecting with you to see what dose or which vaccine you would like to get. And uh, pharmacists and pharmacies do have the capacity to deliver these vaccines and we're excited to be involved in the second dose program.
0: All right. I wanted to ask, and this is this was my personal scenario, but I think there are others that are in a similar boat, and just to make sure people know. Uh, so I went to a pharmacy that I had never been to before. They happened to have supply, uh, called, got in, got an appointment. So originally, my I was told my second dose would be in August. So even though I'd never been there before, I, should I be of the assumption they have my information and that pharmacy will call me whenever it's time or whenever there is a dose available for me?
1: Yes, that's the guidance that uh, we've been receiving. So wherever you got your first dose in a pharmacy, that pharmacist or pharmacy team member will be connecting with you to schedule your second dose if you choose to get it in a pharmacy. And we do have a time frame where we're expected to call, and we're we're going to uh, phone people according to when they receive their first shot. And look at the eight- to 10-week time frame. So uh, be patient. We will be connecting with you, and um, the time frame, I'm sorry, is eight to 12 weeks, so we have a little bit more time to, to get a hold of you and to get that dose, And depending on how much of the vaccine is available to us in the pharmacy, we'll be putting shots into arms.
0: And so if a pharmacist calls someone who got AstraZeneca and that person says, thanks, but I'm going to wait, I'm going to go into the system and get an mRNA, do they just go down the list, down the line to the next person?
1: That's correct. Yes, we would call the next person uh, that received their AstraZeneca vaccine.
0: All right. So it uh, sounds like pharmacists uh, have a good hold on on this. And like you said off the top, uh, for people who are just can't help themselves, with picking up that phone to call, please don't. Uh, your pharmacist or the pharmacist that administered the pharmacy that administered your first shot, they will get in touch with you.
1: Absolutely, that's correct. And and I do understand that pharmacists are their trusted healthcare professional, and they want their opinion. But please. Uh let us call you because we're we're fielding we're we're doing a lot of calling and uh running reports and getting shots ready, so we're very very busy and We're happy to talk to you, but we'll call you when it's time for you to book your appointment. Is
0: is that having any impact on the other kind of day-to-day workings of of pharmacies? Because uh, I would imagine, too, that this is obviously a huge rollout, but there are people that are going to need other non-COVID-related things from their pharmacists.
1: Yes, of course. It's going to add to the workflow, but guarantee uh, pharmacists uh, have lots of efficiencies and uh, workflow processes in place that they're able to manage and, and get the regular work done on top of providing second shots to their patients.
0: All right. Annette Robinson, thank you so much for joining us today and uh, going through the details with us. Appreciate your time so much. Thank you so much. We are going to talk some tech and take a look at what Apple has just announced when it comes to software updates for iPhone and iPad. And who better to tell us what is going on than Andy Barrar, Handy Andy Media, also a tech expert. He's on with us now. Andy, thanks so much for joining the show.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Anytime.
0: What do people need to know if you are an Apple user when it comes to all of these things announced at the Worldwide Developers Conference?
2: Yeah, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are like, "Why do I care about what Apple is talking to about developers?" And I gotta say, I, I watched it, Jill. It got pretty nerdy, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but because they are talking to these app developers, and it's very important for Apple to appease the app developers because they don't really have an app store unless you have apps, and it's the developers that are creating these apps and. Apple's done a very, very good job. Interesting thing I learned today, Jill, they've paid $230 billion to developers since they've had the App Store. So whatever they're doing, they're doing it right because they made a lot of uh, advancements, almost have a monopoly, if you if you think about it, with their apps. But... Um, what what was interesting is they announce all the bit the updates for iOS so iOS uh, 15 is going to be coming out for the iPhone and they need to kind of give the developers a heads up about the new features so that they can develop the apps but for consumers it gives us a lot of understanding on Apple's strategy. And the big takeaway I had, Jill, this year is just how much the pandemic had affected the changes that they're making, because uh, the way that we use our devices was accelerated during the pandemic, and Apple definitely took note of that. What do you think that one
0: of the biggest changes uh, is, or what are we looking at that's, that's changed from the pandemic?
2: Well, Jill, you know, we've always talked about Apple as having this walled garden. It's like the Hotel California, you know, you can check in, but you can't leave (laughs) because everything is so good inside there, you know, everything works seamlessly between, you know, your your iPhone, your iPad and your MacBook. But the walled garden, Jill, is actually coming down a little bit. There's a little hole in the walled garden. And what what they announced today was FaceTime is now coming to Android and Windows devices. And this is all because of Zoom. During the pandemic, everybody jumped on Zoom. We didn't even know what Zoom was before the pandemic. And the big question is, what's going to happen after the pandemic's over? Are we going to continue to use Zoom? Well, by making FaceTime on both Android and Windows devices, Apple is hoping that they can take that share and that FaceTime will become the way that we basically communicate with each other when we're doing video chats.
0: So does that mean, though, because wasn't and I'll I'll fully admit I've I'm not one that's embraced Zoom. I've been I, I consider myself lucky in that I wasn't forced to go into a Zoom world, but I know a lot of people were and still are. So is the difference, though, that on Zoom you can have all of the different screens and on FaceTime you couldn't or can you do that on FaceTime now?
2: Well, the big difference was Jill, if you wanted to use FaceTime, you have to use an Apple device. Right. And so that was so if you if you have family members that are on Android, you know, it 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 was really tough, you know. Like some people like FaceTime is like a verb for just like video chats, right? (laughs) Like I'll FaceTime you. Well, that's actually going to become more of a case. And what's interesting is they have this new feature called SharePlay, which allow you to share with music and video sharing. On FaceTime. So rather than just having conversations, it's gonna they're trying to take advantage of what was happening during the pandemic. And that was virtual watch parties. So you're watching a show together, but you're doing it virtually at the same time. So they're really trying to take advantage of that and, and take away the you know the, the whole zoom out of it. And they might have a chance because a lot of people are zoomed out. <laughs> and Apple, you know, with FaceTime, the people that have Apple devices love FaceTime. So this might actually work and get other people using FaceTime and perhaps if this is the perfect scenario for Apple people start buying Apple devices because they love FaceTime so much.
0: Did they say how it will work then if somebody's on an Android device how will they actually access FaceTime?
2: It's going to be done all in the cloud so it it's kind of like Zoom, you're going to get a link and then you'll be able to connect um, with whatever video camera. So they didn't re- announce when that's going to come out, but I suspect it will be around the fall because that's when the, the big, you know, the new iPhone's is going to come out and the big push, especially as we get closer to the holidays. So expect the ability to FaceTime on Android devices, something that I was hoping to see, you know, a little, little dent in that walled garden, Jill, the little tiny hole, hopefully, they'll just open it up. Because I just want to see as a consumer to be able to have different devices from different companies and have them all work together. And unfortunately, that's not the case. They all all the companies are trying to create their own little walled garden take from Apple strategy, because it it does work. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, The iMessage, I understand as well, is getting a bit of a redesign,
2: That's right. So they're making big improvements to iMessage, but another interesting thing that they did, uh, they were taking advantage of, you know, Apple's really known for their privacy features. And one of the issues that they've had with Siri uh, and with all the, the voice assistants is that they use the cloud. So all your voice recordings get stored into the cloud. And the big question everyone's had, especially when you talk about Amazon Alexa devices, is who owns that data? Once it goes up into the cloud... You know, they're digitizing it. They, they know what you said, and they're, that's a lot of valuable data. Well, what Apple is doing is allowing you to use Siri now without an internet connection. So you'll still be able to turn like, devices on and off inside your house. But if you have those concerns where you don't want your data up in the cloud, you're going to be able to still use Siri um, you know, with your devices with that peace of mind, knowing that nobody has your voice recordings up in the cloud. Hmm.
0: I, I feel like we've gotten to the point where we've kind of waved goodbye to our privacy quite some time ago. And is, do you think that these changes, are they going to improve security and privacy? Or is it just we've we've gone so far down the road of everything being shared?
2: We have. We have. You know, it's very, very hard to be actively engaged in a digital lifestyle and, and have your privacy secure. But what Apple is trying to do, and I think this is very smart, is they're saying if privacy is a very important you know, thing for you, you really do want to, you know, not have different apps tracking you or you want to see what apps are tracking you. These are all the updates that they've done or they announced today to the developers. So you can see like what apps are, are like, you know, looking at what information are they looking at? You're going to be able to get a report and see that. So for the people that do care about privacy, Joe, definitely go Apple because they have those features for you. But, you know, it, it, it's a good strategy for them to, to do that. But it does, of course, Apple devices are expensive. So it co- your privacy comes at a price.
0: Very true. Um, I was reading too that photos, that there will be improvements to the camera, there always seems to be camera improvements, and that the, mach- the machine uh, learning will be able to identify elements in photos, things like a pet, if there's a pet in the scene, or they'll be searching your photos. I thought they were already searching our photos, and that's how they were gleaning all of that information about us.
2: Well, other like Google has been doing this for quite a while right now. And so if you have your photos stored in Google Photos, you could search just like a typical Google search. You could search like dog and all the pictures of your dog would come up. Well, that feature is also coming with Apple Photos now, too. They're using it's essentially machine learning, Jill. It can detect faces and objects. Even if you take pictures of your garden, you can type in garden. And it will show all your garden picks. So it makes it easy to find on your camera roll. But another thing they did with photos was a new feature called Live Text. And essentially, it digitizes all the texts that are in your photos. And this is a great feature, Jill, because for anybody that has to collect receipts, you know, Typically, you have like a shoebox and you just throw your receipts in there. Well, we have to get into the habit of taking pictures of our receipts because it makes it super easy to search and to find those receipts when everything is digitized. And live text is going to allow you to do that. The other thing you could do is write a handwritten note and convert that into email. So. You know, these are really cool features of taking uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning and putting it to basically digitize our handwriting and, and put it into the virtual world, which I think is a fantastic feature.
0: I feel like there there's a step there, the taking the picture of the receipt. Aren't we at the place now where we just get the receipt in an email and it stays on our phone that way?
2: Sometimes, but we still do get paper receipts and it could be like a, a television that you purchased. And it's important to keep those receipts and. I, I'll be honest with you, Jill. I still have not gotten to the habit of taking pictures of my receipts. <laughs> right. Once in a while, I, I have and it's come in handy. But uh, I, you know, it's hard to break those old habits. But with this new live text feature, uh, it's going to make it easier. So if you do have those receipts and you need to keep it, just take a picture of it and you'll be able to search and find it later on.
0: Interesting. Uh, before I let you go, uh, what are what is the reaction to uh, what Apple has announced as far as uh, is Facebook mad or others angry or is this going to be a good thing?
2: Uh, I think Facebook is always going to get mad. You know, the more the, that they put on their privacy features, like try to protect apps from you know tracking what you're doing with your devices, uh, it, it does anger the big apps out there like Facebook, who are trying to just mine our data. And Apple just makes it a little bit harder. So it's like a game of whack-a-mole, you know, like tit for tat between the apps, the app makers, the big ones, and also. Apple who owns the Apple ecosystem and the app ecosystem that works with their devices. So that's always going to be a, a, a conflict that they got to try to, to mesh out because they kind of need each other. But at the same time, they just want our data, Jill. Everybody <laughs> wants our data. And uh, Apple would like to keep that data to themselves rather than give it to these other platforms.
0: Well, and do you think that's one of the, like you said, the devices aren't cheap, they're expensive devices. Is that part of the draw that people are willing to spend a bit more in having that confidence or being a little bit more protected?
2: Well, that's essentially it. That's the the features. It's not just about having the best camera or, you know, the the best battery life. It's also about having the best privacy features. And not everybody cares about privacy. Like you can get a Vizio TV, these, these new Vizio TVs, but they're just data mining so much of your like, television habits, and that's why they're, they're cheaper. Now, some people might be like, I don't care what you, you know, the data that you get from my television habits, and I will pay less for it. And some people who care about their privacy have that option. You're just going to have to pay more. It's now a new luxury feature is privacy protection.
0: All right. Interesting updates from Apple. Andy, thanks so much. Always good to have you uh, here to break down what it actually means for the consumer. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Jill. Anytime. Thanks for being with us. So we've been talking about the Accessibility Act in BC. Some of the concerns with some groups saying they feel they've been left out of that act. Right now, though, we're going to talk more specifically about housing. And I think if you asked a lot of people, or most people might say, yeah, of course, there must be things in the housing legislation and the housing rules in this province to make sure housing is accessible. Well, not so. And Stephanie Cadu joins me on the line now. BC Liberal critic for gender equality accessibility and inclusion thank you so much for being with us good afternoon jill Uh, you've written an opinion piece about this as well talking about the majority of housing that uh, there really isn't a lot of thought when it comes to accessibility or down the road adapting housing how big of an issue is that it is a really really big issue um the the challenge is most
3: people don't know what they don't know Right, and if you haven't needed it, you haven't looked for it. But the reality is, there is very little housing on the market today in any category uh, that works for people with significant disabilities or acts like accessibility disabilities, meaning um, using a wheelchair or a walker or those sorts of those sorts of challenges. And with our population aging as it is, um, right now, nearly 25% of our population has a disability, uh, and the the rate of increase for people with disabilities is double the, the rate of the regular population because of our aging population. So we're not, the challenge is we haven't got it
0: and we're not planning for
3: it. We're not building it. So the, so the challenge is getting bigger.
0: And when you say we're not building it, is there a particular type of housing? Is it single homes? Is it townhomes or condos? Or is it everything?
3: <laughs> it's everything. Um, even even uh, social housing. Now, a lot of people think that if you have a disability, you automatically uh, qualify or would be in social housing. That's not true. It's very, very small percentage of the population uh, of people uh, that qualifies for social housing and uh, another, another portion of that that only is, uh, with, is people with disabilities. But what the challenge is, is even up till now, we haven't been building that housing to be accessible. So the government has made some commitments to doing that, which is great, um, but the problem is we need housing across the spectrum. We need condos, we need townhomes, we need single-family homes. All of, all of the options need to have options for people with disabilities as well because there's people with disabilities uh, looking for housing in all of those types.
0: Uh, When we talk about it, uh, looking at the province as a whole, I know in Vancouver, the city of Vancouver under the Vancouver Charter, there were some changes made a few years ago when it came to things like uh, levers on doors rather than Mm doorknobs and bathrooms had to be made in a way that could be wheelchair accessible or hallways had to be wide Mm -hmm. enough for wheelchairs. So is that specific to Vancouver because they did that under the Vancouver Charter and we don't see it in other parts of the province?
3: Yes, it it right now anything is le- any of this is left up to municipalities to make decisions about and I'll note even in Vancouver they made some good they they made some good steps they also uh made some or didn't make some others so although you had to build a a washroom that could be modified you didn't have to have an entry that worked so you still could build a flight of stairs therefore there would never be a reason to have an accessible washroom in the building because people couldn't get in for the, at the beginning. It, was, it wasn't well thought through, um, well-intentioned, definitely, but uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't provide what we need. And again, it still only talks to a portion of, of the housing stock. We need to look more broadly. Um, so I introduced a bill three times uh, in, in the House, and will again, um, that would have government mandate all new housing in the province uh, has a proportion that would be built to be either visitable, adaptable, or accessible uh, to start increasing uh, the availability of housing.
0: And not that it comes down to cost, not that that everything does, but you make a very good point. And I remember talking to somebody about that very thing, that building a home in Vancouver, the second-story bathroom had to be accessible. But like you said, it was a two-story house. It was was a a regular single home. It didn't have an elevator in it. There was no way to get to the second story really easily if you were in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. So it adds to the cost of building because you have to make this bathroom accessible. But again, not well thought out. Because nobody's going to be accessing that bathroom, so it seems like we could find better ways to make housing that is actually accessible.
3: There are, and and the reality is, if you plan it all from the beginning, there's very little additional cost. Um, and and when you, uh, and I'm not suggesting that by any means we need to build everything to uh, the highest standard of accessibility that would work for absolutely everyone but a portion of housing we need to start building. The reality is there was a survey in the U.S. in uh, 2011 about their housing stock. I haven't seen anything in B.C. or Canada similar, but I would expect the, the results would be similar if we did one. Um, that showed that only about a third of housing in the U.S. is even modifiable for a person with a mobility disability. Less than 5% is accessible for people with moderate mobility difficulties and less than 1% of housing accessible for wheelchair users. And the challenge, of course, as we age, we have, we have people who, who acquire uh, mobility disabilities as they age, and that forces them out of their homes, uh, puts additional pressure on on the long-term care sector um, and ultimately isn't the best place uh, for people. We need people to be able to age in place as well, never mind the, all of those people with disabilities like myself and like your producer who may want to move uh, to take a new job, and they can't do that if they can't find housing. Um, so we have, we have some real challenges uh, to, to addressing this across the spectrum. And government is going to have to take more cohesive action from a central point like the provincial government to make it happen.
0: Uh, When you've tried to address this and brought forward the private members bill, uh, oftentimes private members bills don't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. But do you feel like this one, because uh, it is about the population, the aging population, it, it, it shouldn't really be a partisan issue, making sure people are able to access homes?
3: Yes. No. I don't think it does need to be partisan at all. Um, I'm not. I'm not uh, suggesting this is one government's problem, failure or whatever. Our government didn't do this either. Uh, but it's something that I've been advocating for, and and we had in our platform in, 20, in 2017, uh, and would, we're prepared to make changes. And I would hope that this government is prepared to make changes as well. That the Accessibility Act that was passed last week is largely an empty shell, which doesn't bring any of these uh, real life changes. Uh, to people with disabilities in any real uh, or reasonable time frame. And while I'm happy that act passed, I'm unhappy that things like this weren't expressly dealt with in the legislation from the front, given that we know... Uh, These things are big issues. I've raised them. Other people have raised them. um, And we continue to have uh, to to butt up against uh, an immovable government structure around these things. So uh, I am hopeful uh, that government will will uh, take the lead and and. You know, pass their own legislation, make changes uh, to the building code as as they as they have the ability to do, um, or do it under the Accessibility Act. Whichever they prefer um, is okay with me. We just have to get on this. We can't be waiting any longer. Australia in April, uh, uh, the housing ministers in Australia agreed to mandate the uh, livable housing design standards uh, for the country. Other places are recognizing this as well. It's not just here. Um, but certainly, if we don't act, we're just prolonging prolonging the problem uh, and continuing to erect barriers for people with disabilities.
0: Uh, why do you think it didn't get the attention then, uh, not getting the attention now under this current government, but also didn't get the attention under your government? Well, it, it, these things take time, certainly, and I and I respect that. Um, there are there are
3: considerations to be made. There's education to be done. Uh, and like I say, I had been pushing it for a number of years and had gotten gotten to the stage where we were going to move forward. Um, I am hopeful that this government knows this problem exists and is is looking. Uh, but they've been very quiet on it. Uh, they haven't made a statement to the effect that they support the legislation or or support doing something uh, in regards to this. Uh, they have, like I say, made some changes in, in relation to um, how they will build affordable or uh, BC housing, so social housing. And I think that's great, but that certainly doesn't address the, the broader issue for the majority of people with disabilities being able to be uh, be mobile and, and be safe in their homes. And, and certainly, I, I would hope that government will uh, see fit to to uh,
0: act on this or this legislation or, or something similar in in.
3: Short order.
0: Uh, Do you think it does come down to cost? In that, like you said, if it's done from the beginning, the cost add-on isn't isn't as high. But is it something? Are we talking about being able to adapt housing? And is that something that there's pushback and that it really ups the cost?
3: No, it really does. It really doesn't up the cost very much at all when you build it right from the start. The uh, I have built my home uh, from the start because I wasn't able to find uh, housing I could purchase and renovate. Uh, the The reality is that making adaptations to a home that wasn't built for access is incredibly expensive, if not impossible. Adapting a home that was built to be adaptable is is very inexpensive. Uh, and And can be done really well, so that 's what we need to be getting in the into the market. The reality is that the building the building industry has has had a barrier to this for a long time. They think that it 's not needed. they think that because people aren 't breaking down their doors, asking them to do this that somehow they don 't need to. Um, I tell them i I would tell them they're wrong, and I disagree um, a number of years ago I did a, a quick survey i I reached out to the all of the builders of homes in my community, and there are many it's a fast growing community um, asking them if they would if they had anything that was adaptable or or uh, accessible or if they would be willing to adapt a plan at my cost to uh so that I could purchase within their development and the answer in all but all but one of the cases, and I think we called about 14 at the time, was no. Mm. Um, now, that's, that That would require me to then go fight it at a human rights tribunal or whatever. And and frankly, I don't think people with disabilities are that interested in working with people that are not interested in working with them. But it's, like I say, 25% of the
0: population is going to need this at some point. We need to start building it. All right. Stephanie Cadu, we'll leave it there for today. Thanks so much for joining us to talk more about that. Appreciate your uh, time and the interest. Thank you, Jim. I know a lot of people are looking forward to traveling, looking forward to uh, maybe getting out and seeing some parts of the province they've not seen before. That might be your first step as far as traveling once the restrictions have been relaxed. We also know that there have been some who aren't waiting for the rules to relax, but when they turned up at a tourist site in the Similkameen Valley, uh, they were not welcome. We're going to talk more about that with the general manager of the Grist Mill and Gardens in Karameas, Chris Chris Matheson, who is with us on the line now. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thanks for having me, Jill.
0: Uh, What happened when, I understand, some visitors from Alberta arrived?
4: Yeah, um, uh, yeah, earlier this week we opened up and we had some visitors who were clearly, uh, A, from Alberta and clearly out here on recreation. And so very gently and kindly uh, we asked them uh, not to visit us today. And what was the response to that? Uh, They were obviously a a little put out, but I I think they understood. Um, You know, the truth is uh, messaging has been very consistent for a long time. We're supposed to stay close to home right now. And we'd like to encourage people to do that just for a little while longer.
0: Uh, Would you have done the same then, I guess, if you're seeing people from other parts of the province outside of that health region? Would you also uh, tell people that arrive from that area that they too maybe uh, shouldn't be venturing so far from home?
4: That's that's exactly the thing. I mean, we've we've got a little bit of attention for for that move, but it had nothing to do with the fact that they were from Alberta. You know, if you'd come up from Vancouver right now or if you'd come from from another part of the province, we, we would still politely and gently say, you know, stay, close to home just a little while longer. We would love to see you. We, we need the business, to be honest. But, you know, we've got to get through this so that we can have something like a normal summer. Just hold on.
0: Right. Now, and how are you knowing where people are coming from as far as are you checking identification or how did you know they were from Alberta?
4: Oh, goodness, no, we, we, we wouldn't do anything quite so severe. But it, it's, it's a normal part of our, our conversation with people when they arrive to get at least a little bit of information about them for our own stats. You know, you know where are you visiting from today? You know, where are you from? And people are surprising sometimes in how much they offer. Uh, <laughs> if they didn't say anything, obviously, we can't screen that carefully and we, we, we wouldn't we're not trying to be confrontational. We're we're just trying to take care of, you know, our visitors and our staff and our community right now.
0: And you mentioned this is one of the first days that you had reopened. How have things been for you during this pandemic?
4: The pandemic has been brutal for us. I mean, as a a provincial level heritage site, like we are in a normal year, we see 10,000, 15,000 visitors, most of them international. And last year, that completely dried up. We went from I guess about 15,000 visitors to about 2,000. That said, the 2,000 that came last year that were all from our region were overwhelmingly supportive and actually did a lot to help keep our business afloat. We, we've adapted. We'll be fine getting out on the other end of this. But, you know, we need to get back to normal. And the only way we can do that is by following the guidelines right now.
0: Uh, and for people that maybe haven't been to the Grist Mill and Gardens and they're waiting again for the travel to open up and want to pay a visit, what exactly is it?
4: Well, we, we're, we're a site based around this beautiful 145-year-old waterwheel-powered flour mill. That's sort of the center of our site. Everything else that's here is built around that. Uh, it is the only working mill of its type in all of Western Canada. And we have beautiful gardens and other amenities like a campground, a restaurant, and so on. Uh, we've got a lot to offer, again, when the restrictions come off.
0: And you're hopeful then I would imagine that once we get to that part of the reopening plan that people can are once again being encouraged to travel freely throughout BC that the tourists will come back.
4: That's, that's exactly it. I mean, last year was, was a great example. We had a lot of visitors, from the, especially from the Lower Mainland, who came up to the Okanagan and, and the Similkameen next door because it felt safe. It felt a little more wide open than, than being in the big city. And we would love to welcome those people to come up again this year. We're only four hours away.
0: It must have been difficult though as you said going through this pandemic and seeing the visitors drop so drastically that must have been a difficult decision even though you knew you were doing the right thing for health and safety concerns it must be difficult to try to turn away paying customers
4: Oh, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly tough. We're, we're unusual compared to a lot of other heritage sites, too, because we don't get any operating funding from government. We've sort of been spun off into this weird public-private thing. And so we have to pay our own bills. So every person we turn away it hurts us a little bit, but doing the right thing is still doing the right thing. And people don't give you kudos you know, for doing the right thing when it's easy. You know? It's when it's hard that it really matters.
0: How have, has it been as far as cases in the Carameas area? Have you been impacted as far as staff or, or people in that community having COVID?
4: We've been really, really lucky. We've had a, a bare handful of cases here. It's, it's been very, very reasonable. But of course, we're in a rural area where people are pretty spread out. You don't have to go far to get to Kelowna, where you know, obviously there have been some much more, 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 more large-scale outbreaks. You know that, that said, we all know people that have been directly affected by this. And that's one of the reasons we take it so seriously.
0: Uh, So are you doing anything special then or as far as getting ready if those restrictions are lifted June 15th? So not too, too far away from now. We're already at June uh, 7th. uh, Are you doing anything to gear up for that?
4: Well, uh, just getting ready for a a busy season of giving people tours of the place and opening our restaurant we didn't even open it last year it just wasn't worth it for us but we're offering the food service again maybe later on in the summer we'll be able to get back to hosting a few weddings or some you know outdoor concerts it's sort of we're taking it one step at a time we're not going to go too fast at it Um, and and you know we're going to see how it goes and adapt as the season goes
0: have you heard from other organizers, or uh, does it hurt you as far as if, if others are kind of turning a blind eye to it and are allowing people at this point to arrive from out of province or out of health region? I, I mean, uh, it's,
4: it, it's it's tough because we've all got to look out for, for our own interests. And for us, the, the, the equation has very much been doing the right thing and, and, and being loud about doing the right thing. It's been really good for us, you know, getting getting positive publicity for this is is, is really appreciated and helps us. There's others that have a different equation and I'm not going to begrudge them the choices that they make, but I hope that they're making them with with kindness, you know, with with love in mind and with care for their communities.
0: Uh, And you mentioned then uh, that's, uh, I I know that's going to sound just amazing to people hearing just the thought of planning for concerts and planning for outdoor gatherings and celebrations. I understand you have camping there as well. It's the hope that it, it will kind of look like some form of
4: normal? Some form of normal. I mean, there's going to be adaptations for a long time yet, but at least, you know, camping, you can stay far enough away from people. There's lots of open air. Uh, Again, we'll see what happens, (laughs) but hopefully it'll be a little more normal.
0: All right. Well, it sounds like you've been making those tough decisions, but again, the bigger picture, uh, taking a look at what the summer could look like.
4: That's, that's it. And, and we're heartened by all the positive feedback that we've been getting from people. There's a lot of really good people out there just trying to do the right thing. And we appreciate hearing from them because it helps encourage us to do the right thing ourselves.
0: When people do get back into the scenario where they can come and visit and stay, is it going to be an online method or as far as doing that and booking? Or how do you anticipate things will, will start unfolding as, as you open up?
4: Uh, we, we Because we're an outdoor site, we don't have to limit capacity in the same way an indoor museum like the, the Vancouver Art Gallery does, for example. So people are going to be able to just show up. That said, if they want to know exactly what's happening, they should definitely visit our website uh, to find out before they arrive.
0: It is time to talk a little bit about collections. And if you are somebody who has maybe collected sports cards, sports memorabilia, stamps, those are the things that come to mind. Although it appears people will collect just about anything, and that includes fast food packaging. And it comes with a pretty hefty price. So how does all of this work? Well, our show contributor, John Jang, took a look at that and brings us this report.
5: Hey, good afternoon, Jill, and welcome to the wonderful world of collecting. Now, just recently, a Wayne Gretzky rookie card sold for $3.75 million, which obviously has shattered the record price of any vintage ice hockey card. The previous record price was $1.29 million, set by another perfect Gretzky. It begs the question, how exactly is value determined by collectors and how does any of this actually work? I spoke with Michael Chark, a collector at aasports.com who's been in the business for over 40 years, and I asked him, is this kind of price tag a common occurrence in the game?
6: If that was normal, I'd be talking to you from my own private island somewhere <laughs> with probably no cell phone access. Here's the thing about... Um, All collectibles in general specifically sports cards the thing with that Wayne Gretzky rookie card in particular what people have to understand is condition there are that is a perfect 10 out of 10 so there is a process in the business called grading there are a handful of companies that do it most of them are in in the United States Simple terms, people send their Wayne Gretzky card to the, th- these companies. They rate them on a scale of one to ten. It's like a Ferrari and a used Kia. They're both cars, but different parts. Those way, that, that that Wayne Gretzky card that did sell for that amount of money, there are two in the world. So you know, the Wayne Gretzky rookie card itself, I've bought and sold hundreds. That card can sell, I just sold actually one last night on eBay to give you some clarification on a PSA 4, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, and I got just over $2,500 U.S. for that card. So a 10 out of 10 or a 9.5 out of 10 will will appeal to an extremely high-end buyer who's not necessarily a collector. But if someone has their childhood Wayne Gretzky card that their mom never threw out and it's got a crease in it and a rounded corner, you have some value there. But we're not talking, you know, anywhere near that kind of that kind of value. Keep in mind, though, originally that card came in a pack of of eight cards, I believe, for 20 cents. So whatever someone ends up selling that card for, if you look at it strictly in terms of, uh,
5: of a return, it's phenomenal. So how often are we seeing multi-million dollar purchases for sports memorabilia, things like cards, jerseys, and things of that nature? Because it feels like maybe this is a growing trend, if anything.
6: There's only so many buyers at these ridiculously high prices for these cards but i would argue it's not really a sports card a collector is not buying that card wayne gretzky michael jordan um uh players like uh, of that ilk muhammad ali they're not it's not about sports cards it's about um you know pop culture. It's about you know everyone in the world knows who the Beatles are. You could go to the farthest corner of the world, and they're probably playing Hey Jude as we speak right now. Wayne Gretzky isn't a hockey player. He's Canadiana. He is Canadiana, and that's part of why that card sells for so much. It 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 it's not just a hockey card. Tom Brady is is becoming you know, it's not just a football card. Tom Brady is almost becoming Americana. Michael Jordan is Americana. That sort of thing. That plays a big factor into
5: things. And finally, Michael, what determines value for something that is produced right now? Like, if I went and picked up a card that was manufactured and released just a month ago, who or what determines that this card will become a million-dollar object in the future?
6: Time. And that's an excellent question. So uh, let me try to answer that. And make sense of it see uh, Connor mcdavid up until two weeks ago was the hottest thing in the hockey card market and he's at the point of his career where he has to win a stanley cup and the fact that the oilers were eliminated in the first round it's like a stock you went on ebay the next day and you saw prices coming down because the the shine was off of him and it goes on to somebody else I think um for kids now maybe in twenty years they will be looking to players that someone my age who's sixty isn't. For example, my I have a sixteen year old son, he doesn't even know who Bobby Orr is. Hmm. Now if you're my age you're gonna laugh. So in terms of, of I don't know if kids will collect when they're older. I don't think they will. I don't think they're developing a muscle for it. I think history to kids is a week-long if and um, you know they're not I don't think kids are gonna be nostalgic when they're older because again their lives are so different now Mm. if I was telling if you asked me where this thing will be in 20 years I think it and you're sort of seeing it now kids might collect running shoes they might collect old cell phones Who knows because that's what collecting is it's about remembering your childhood what I would say is our standards are so much higher now. It's not enough that, you know, Sidney Crosby is, you know, uh, scored the gold medal winning goal in Vancouver. And he's won a couple Stanley Cups. It's what has he done lately? It will change over time. Our expectations of athletes have changed over time. So, if anything, I bet you 20 years from now, the Wayne Gretzky rookie card will sell for way more than any player who's playing now or is going to play next year or two years or three years from now, if that makes any sense to you.
5: He is Michael Chark from sports.com, a collector in Vancouver with over 40 years in the business. Appreciate you giving us your time and expertise. My pleasure. Thank you. Now, Jill, if sports cards aren't really your forte, just remember there's a market for pretty much anything. If it's A, a limited edition, and b. Hugely popular, which is why right now there are people selling used McDonald's packaging from their BTS meals that are going for a thousand bucks online. BTS, if uh, you don't know, it's one of the largest boy bands in the world, superstars in the K-pop industry. And yes, they're so popular that people are buying your used Chicken McNugget boxes to keep as memorabilia. So maybe your next trip out to McDonald's could be a very profitable one.